0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code Podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is
1: Michael Gaius, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me today is Carl Kaufman. Carl, first time you and I speak, but introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you
2: doing currently? Yeah, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. I started off, my first job out of college was as a stock market data analyst for Thomson Reuters, calculating index funds or indexes since S&P and Russell can't really report their own index numbers, they have to go to an outside source. So I was there for several years and left to kind of do my own thing and pursue my own thing. I'm really interested in the individual investor and trying to be a champion for the individual investor. About 10 years ago, I I got together with my dad and we started American Dream Investing, which is a financial publication as well, sending trades from our own portfolio as an individual investor to just kind of show people how a successful individual investor trades within their own portfolio. Since then, I've gone up to become a contributor for Forbes.com, interviewed guys like Jeffrey Gunlock and wrote a book a couple of years ago. And I've taken to the Twitter and X platform about over the last year just kind of sharing my thoughts and my first Twitter space, so happy to be on here, thrown right into the fire. So this is great. All right, so, so let's get into some of the
1: misconceptions around being an individual retail investor. There is a term that's thrown around a lot that you know, retail is, in quotes, dumb money. And I've, I myself have always had an issue with that because it's not about intelligence, right? I mean, no amount of intelligence can increase the clarity of one's crystal ball. Nobody can predict the future, whether you're a professional or an individual, but I do think you can argue that individuals might be more susceptible to doing the wrong things, independent of their intelligence level. What are some of the things from your experience that you find individual investors, retail investors do wrong, which has nothing to do with how they think about markets?
2: Right. Well, I think probably number one is having an inflated sense of ego and thinking that you know they're always right. Not taking it on the chin, not owning up to mistakes. I think that's probably the number one mistake. And I'm sure many academic studies can support that. You know, the hardest aspect of investing, and like you said, dumb money, smart money, it doesn't matter. The hardest part is definitely controlling emotions and the individual investors, particularly those starting out, as we've seen throughout the whole meme stock craze of the last couple of years can get caught up in things and make poor decisions, whether it's you know putting all their net worth in GameStop or AMC or over-diversifying, which I think is a mistake. I think having that experience and the knowledge that you're going to make mistakes is critical to success as an individual investor or any investor. Do you think that
1: social media has made the Ability to control emotions harder. I mean, let's face it. Engagement comes from, yeah, you know, that emotional pull. So as much as you can argue, platforms like Reddit, like X, have allowed more individual investors to be confident in trading. I'd argue it actually makes them more likely to make mistakes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's easy to get caught up in the crowd, right? And it's easy to just find someone who seems convincing online and you know puts their their thesis for investing in a stock online i mean it's just so easy to get caught up in all of that and it's short-term thinking to the extreme right i mean you're not even worried about quarterly reports or anything because it's all about what's happening this second and you see that you see that now even with with bill Ackman, the the last was it yesterday or the day before where he he said that he was uh, covering his short position on treasuries and the market the market reacted accordingly. So I shared at the the top of the nest one of the quotes from Philip Fisher.
1: History has shown that in every age and in every field of human knowledge, many of the views which almost everyone accepted as true and never bothered to think about further were in time proven completely wrong. I want to apply that timeless quote to uh, today from your perspective in terms of what is it that you think uh, the Fed uh, is assuming that people think uh, the Fed is right on, but in reality may not be the case.
2: Well, you know, like I tweeted today, you know, the Fed and other economists are saying that all oh, inflation is going in the right direction and and we're getting closer to beating it. Um, but, you know, for the average person that goes to the supermarket or, or goes to fill up their car, I mean, that's clearly not the case. And I mean, food prices are not going down, that's for sure. Gas prices are, you know, go up and down accordingly, but You know the the Fed is going with data that's lagging, right? And they've been proven to make mistakes throughout their history. I don't know why they would, why anyone would give them the benefit of the doubt at this point that they are not going to break the system at some point. You know, you talk about a a credit event coming. You know, I mean, the signs are certainly there that something is going to happen, something's going to break, and we'll see. But I think we're going to look at this period of time from, say, the pandemic, even going back to the, the beginning of zero interest rate policy as a, a huge reckoning that's going to come. And, you know, the Fed is going to be caught with their pants down, really. You know, what, what really concerns me, I just put a piece out on
1: investor place. I, I had to not, you know, usually I look at things from, a, from an averages perspective. I look at different sector ETFs to sort of get a sense of intermarket movement. But, you know, if you look at some of these Big bank stock, Citigroup, yeah, Bank of America, Barclays, these things are you know, just stock price wise, it, it's almost like it's screaming that we're on the verge of a financial crisis. I, I don't know why it's not getting that much coverage.
2: Yeah, you look at uh, Bank of America and uh, the crappy, uh, crappy loans that they have on their balance sheet, you know, uh, we're, are we going to go back to the too big to fail thing from 2000, you know, the late 2000s? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but. What I do know is that regardless of what happens in the short term, I'm thinking long term. And that's for me has been critical to my success, to my father's success over the years, is knowing that whatever happens in the short term, the market will recover at some point. You know, I mean, I'm in my early 40s, so I'm not so worried about retirement right now. I think if you are. On the verge of retirement or retirement, you might have a different perspective. But whatever happens in the short term, you know, preparing yourself and your portfolio for the long term, it helps me sleep at night a little better. And, you know, it makes it fun to talk about at the very least. But this goes back, I think, to
1: the individual investors and quotes dumb money. I think, you know, if we agree that markets over time, you know, you're better to be in equities than not. Sure. The problem, right, of course, is that most people don't think like that. Most individual investors have, I think, a, if I were going to argue anything, that the biggest difference between individual retail and, you know, kind of more institutional, it is that time frame, right? The right. Retail has yeah. to be much more shorter term, and I'd argue having more of a gambling mentality, right, with playing with options, in
2: particular, than you know, real longer term allocators. Yeah. Look, I mean, retail could do whatever they want. That's one of the nice things about being an individual investor. So I think. Many people who got into the market, especially in 2020, there were no sports on TV. There, the casinos were closed. They viewed it like, like you know, this is I'm gonna be I'm gonna be gambling here with you know zero day till expiration options. And I think you know that there's a place for short termism and day trading if you really study it and you know what you're doing. I think it's a very good way to lose a lot of money very quickly. You know, there's also plenty of retail individual investors that do take a long-term view of the market and that's why there's a lot of buying the dip in you know stalwarts as opposed to you know the AMCs or the, or the game spots of the world so you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you said
1: over diversifying is a mistake which i think is interesting because you know that saying that it's like diversification right if yeah. you do too much diversification obviously it doesn't help But you do need to have some kind of diversification because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about unknowable future paths. And you want to have arguably as many paths as possible covered in your portfolio. So how do you think about the point at which a a portfolio is over diversified?
2: Yeah, I think the individual investor without a team of Mm -hmm. analysts working for them can't keep track of more than 15, maybe 20 at, at the highest investments in their portfolio. And, you know, you get ETFs or index funds or whatnot, and you can claim you're diversified that way. But if you look at, you know, the S&P 500 these days, you know, the weighting of the, the top 10 stocks are, you know, are so disproportionate, except maybe in the, from the 1970s with the nifty 50 or whatever. So it's the nice thing about concentration is if you're willing to spend the time and the work, and the effort. You can really understand how a company operates. And some companies offer you diversification in and of it themselves. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is a perfect example of a company that has their hands in everything. And if you want to have insurance exposure and real estate exposure and a little bit of and some equity exposure, you get some Apple in there, you get some Bank of America, who knows what's going to happen there. But you can be diversified enough with just a few stocks. I feel, and that's what's worked for me. Yeah, I think mean, the problem is most individuals they concentrate based
1: on a chart or based on momentum. Whereas the reality is, if you're really going to do a, a true concentrated portfolio, you, you sure as hell better make sure you understand the company, the assets, the valuation, and have a, a different time
2: frame. Yeah, I mean, the fundamentals are, are what matters when when concentrating a position like that. If you're if you're in it for the long term, I mean, you need to know if. The fundamentals are still there. If the story, if your thesis holds up over time, you need to be on top of the macro environment and the competitors. All of that needs to be taken into consideration as part of your research. You know, I mean, unless you're, you know, a professional trader, you know, like a George Soros concentrating in something and and using derivatives and such in a complicated manner. I mean, you don't need to be. You you'd be day trading within your portfolio unless you know what you're doing. I mean, I like to sell options, calls and puts against, you know, the bigger positions within my portfolio. And that's how I stay active from a a week to week perspective with my long term positions.
1: Let's talk about some of those positions, if if you'd mind sharing. What are some of the things that you yourself are heavily invested in? And then, you know, do you when you take a concentrated position, what makes you uh,
2: sell out of it? Well, Apple is my biggest holding by far and I started investing in the Apple in about 2010 and just been continually adding over time and selling it. the, you know, I sold at 175, bought it back, it continued to, to go in. I sell if I need to raise some cash. One, one particular reason I would sell a stock is for quote-unquote accounting irregularities, which means they're committing fraud on the balance sheet. And so even if uh, I really thought the stock had a good story, I would reconsider instantly whether that was the right call or not. If a company were to be acquired, I would sell because usually it jumps up right away and most of the gains are going to be right there. Other than that, it's only if I notice there's a deterioration in the fundamentals would I consider selling a position. Really buy and hold for most of my things and then trade around it with, with some options.
1: The trading around it are there certain rules that you follow, technical signals, or is it you know something that maybe can't exactly be codified, something that's more based on intuition? And I think that because yeah, I tend to prefer more rules based approaches, although obviously it has not helped, you know. Mm. But I do think that there is something to the idea that you can almost feel when things are getting extended without necessarily having some kind of technical basis.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm a big believer in intuition and trusting your gut. I mean, you know, all the academics would probably tell you that's not a good way to to invest. But and it's not something that could really be taught. It has to be experienced, right? You have to be in the market and have real money in the line and feel what it's like to lose money and to make money. And I'm a big believer in in intuition Uh, as far as technicals. You know, I've studied technicals and I use it in some respects, mostly to to kind of understand what the market is doing or, you know, technical traders are doing. So I'll look at VWAP, I'll look at, you know, Elliott waves and such, but it's mostly just to watch the chart and see if I'm planning on buying a stock, I'll take a look at the chart and see what would probably be a good time to get in or out depending on the move I'm making. But You know, for me, intuition is really key just from having watched the stocks every day for hours and weeks and months and years. And like I said, that can't be taught. That has to be experienced.
1: What's your intuition telling you now about
2: where we are with stocks broadly? I mean, if you look at if you look at what the market is saying, right, it's saying that they're trying to price in that the Fed is keeping rates higher for longer they don't really believe them that it's, that's going to happen. Things are expensive in the tech world. I mean your your beloved Nvidia as a as a shining example of that. It just, I mean, talk about frothy and crazy. I mean, it, investors have really bought into the AI story like like mad. And so I think we're due for a reckoning in the short term. I don't know how short. I don't know when that's going to happen, but I think. That would present an, uh, an opportunity for long term investors like me to get companies that may have a tangential relationship to AI or more of a picks and shovel play, like, you know, like a Broadcom or even, you know, Intel being a dog that, that everybody has ignored for, for many years and thinks that they're late, you know, they're behind everybody in the pack. I think that I don't just don't know to quote Lou Reed. But it's fun to, to be positioned to take, take advantage of whatever may happen. I mean, if if things continue to go up, I'll continue to buy or just hold cash and, and get five and a quarter percent on that and wait for, for the striking price.
1: It's actually, since you mentioned Intel, Intel uh, there was, I forget who it was yesterday, I was happy to have CNBC on and somebody was saying that no company has been a worse steward of capital than Intel. Right. Which is, which is a to be a strange way of framing it because it's like, all right, that guy probably could never run Intel to begin with. No, to suspect, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's easy to quarterback and say things like that. But it, it does take a contrarian mindset to say, you know what, maybe consider Intel over NVIDIA. And that's not easy for most people to do, again, going back to the individual versus, you know, kind of the more professional allocator probably would consider doing that. Individual likely wouldn't. Mm-hmm. This gets into sort of contrarianism in general. L- let's, I name the space Becoming the Contrarian Investor. Because I think it's important for people to understand that there's two ways to think about investing, either your momentum or your mean averting mean averting is basically contrarianism. How do you define contrarianism, and how do you get the right mindset to think differently from the crowd? And importantly, how do you get the right mindset to know if you should be thinking differently from the crowd?
2: Yeah, look, there's contrarianism for the sake of contrarianism, right? And saying, well, you know, this stock is high, so I'm going to sell, or... You know, I have to be different from everybody else. I don't think that gets you very far because you're relying more on luck than anything else. You're basically just doing an inverse Kramer kind of thing or or a George Costanza where you just do the opposite, right, of what you think everybody else should be doing. I think contrarianism to be successful has to be backed by thorough research. And real deep thinking. I mean, I, I, I just revisited Howard Marks' book, The The Most Important Thing Illuminated, and he has, he starts off right away with his second level thinking, right, which is asking yourself some specific questions to really put things in perspective, right? Like what, why would things be different from what the market is telling you? What would have to happen in order for your reverse case thesis to come true? You know, how does the current price comport with a consensus view of the future and with mine is one of his questions.
0: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit the lead slash lead lag live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. Just to reset the room for their meeting 20 minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Carl here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be in podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite uh, platforms, Apple, YouTube, Spotify. You had mentioned your father a few times. I've talked and very, been very public about kind of my own family history. I, I'm curious a little bit about the origin story as far as you and, and your father, the family involvement in investing. You know, What has he done throughout his life and you know, how did it
2: impact you? Yeah, and that's what makes me so passionate about trying to educate others is because I was so lucky to have a, a father who uh, made it a priority to teach me and my brother about investing principles. It, yeah, it's not taught to, to, to the same extent in schools, obviously. But my dad was, was a scientist for, for craft foods. He packaged bottles and cans for like Kool-Aid, right? The first member of his, he was completely self-taught. And he found that he was making more money investing in the market than he was at his job. So he retired relatively early and started doing full time. And he was able to triple and quadruple his net worth in retirement. So, you know, he taught me a lot of the principles I'm talking about now, contrarianism, you know, not always going along with the crowd, trusting in your gut, concentrating in a position. And, you know, we started the business in 2016. Because all his friends kept asking him what to invest in. So we thought, well, why not just share it with with some people and make a business out of it? And so sadly, my dad passed away right before the pandemic, leaving me to take over the family portfolio and make sure my mom was taken care of and and that the principles that he used to build wealth would continue throughout the generations, hopefully. And I plan on teaching it to my two young children as well. So, you know, it, it goes back to not settling for average and thinking differently from others and really finding a passion for it. And it's a belief that maybe not everyone could do it, but anyone with the right mindset and 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 drive and passion for it can do well in the stock market. Were there
1: things that, as you proceeds along your own investing journey that you found you disagreed with in terms of the way that your own father would look at markets. I say that as somebody who also, you know, grew up with Mm -hmm. my father in the business, you know, there are things that I agreed with him at the time, but then obviously as I got older, it's like, all right, well, maybe he wasn't exactly right on that. Um, I'm curious about that part of it because I think that, you know, there's a natural tendency to want to believe that everything your father says
2: is accurate and true. But, you know, the reality is they're human. Yep, Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great question. I mean, the big thing for me, my dad always had CNBC on in his office all day, every day. And for me, I think that was almost a detriment to my own research and my own understanding. I still listen and watch it on occasion. But for me, it's just noise. And I like to listen to CNBC or in the car or, you know, watch it on occasion. But for me, the value of CNBC is watching interviews with CEOs whose company I own, whose stock I own, so I can kind of get a feel for them and see if I can see how they answer the questions and kind of gauge if they're telling the truth or not. I think that's very interesting. I also listen to it, basically see what everyone else is doing, because if you watch or listen to CNBC, everybody has the exact same opinion, pretty much. I mean... They they all fall in line. Nobody wants to be like you know the 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 crazy hopped up prices right contestant saying you know the stock price is going to be three times higher or three times lower than everybody else. So it's interesting to see what everybody is saying, and then I can go about seeing if I could poke holes in it, and if I can come up with my own kind of contrarian take on that. And part of that's also. Learning
1: from others, obviously, beyond just your father. I know you had mentioned that you spent some time looking at some of the, in quotes, greats when it comes to investing. Maybe just share with the audience some of the more interesting you know, kind of investment, in quotes, legends that you looked into, that you've studied, and if there were any kind of commonalities across them.
2: Yeah, you know, you know my dad always liked Warren Buffett, but never owned any Berkshire Hathaway stock. And, and I, I bought some from my own portfolio. Uh, and and have studied Buffett, you know, his letters more so than my my dad ever did. Peter Lynch was, the, you know, went up on Wall Street was the first book my dad gave me when I graduated from college, and and that was that was kind of what started my real passion, uh, knowing that I could connect to my dad that way. So I love Peter Lynch. I love how he encourages the individual investor, and his, his writing is just so wonderful. Philip Fisher, you you have there is great Howard Marks even george soros as demonized as he may be i find his writing to be fascinating on an intellectual and philosophical level as far as his like feedback loops excuse me his feedback loops on the, on the market so i think there's a lot to learn from the great investors but the key is not just copying them it's it's synthesizing bits and pieces from them all and coming up with your own philosophy and and using that to to guide you as you go along learning and and studying the markets yourself.
1: Yeah, no I think that's very well-taken. I also think that it's important that people not to your point try to imitate another investor. Yeah, you know, being an investor is more than just a set of rules, right? It's temperaments it's only your own individual sort of risk tolerances and yeah, dynamics. I don't think anybody should ever think about cloning
2: somebody because you have to find what also works for you as an individual. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you look at, say, Modish uh, Pabrai, who, who is an admitted clone of Warren Buffett, right? But I don't know any, anyone else who is that successful doing it. Now, look, I mean, part of my business model is sharing my trades with with members of my service. But, you know, I send that information to people who can do what they want with it. I mean, it's they're not going to be able to fully copy my results because everybody's got a different scenario, but it's good to get different trading ideas and to see how an investor trades within their own portfolio. I mean, especially with say options trading, you know, I don't do weekly option trades. I look all the time for opportunities, but I sit back and wait for my pitch and try to be patient instead of swinging at every pitch. So there's certainly a lot of value to get from seeing what other people's trades are. Now, if you, for people who copy, say Warren Buffett based on a 13F report, you know that's not up to date. So that's lagging data as well. You don't know what Warren Buffett and Berkshire or or Bill Ackman or um, you know any of those guys have done over the past, yeah, you, know, you know, several weeks since the 13F was filed. So uh, you know, I don't recommend doing that. But but it's good to get ideas from a variety of sources and see how these investors are going about and managing their own portfolios. When you have a cost trade portfolio and you've got your view on things, arguably you also have a lot of time,
1: right? Because, yeah. it's like, you know, I mean, I get that you're trimming and, you know, using the intuition side to manage waiting. But, yeah, for the most part, yeah, you have some time. But I'm curious, what do you do in your free time? I mean, is it just kind of reading about markets? I mean, I think when you're passionate, you're just interested in the way the world works, the way money works, even though you're not necessarily doing anything with your portfolio.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm looking for new ideas. I'm reading as m- whatever I can get a ha- my hands on. I'm also writing a lot. I find that writing helps to kind of process my thoughts and my ideas and trying to have conversations with people and reaching out. I'm currently creating a film course that I, I want to do for Kind of beginners to try and get them to, to start because, you know, so many people are just overwhelmed or don't know anything about the market. They're not even, they don't even have any exposure. I mean, if I can convince people to just put some money in, into an index fund and set it up automatically, I think that'd be a good way for, for most people to just get started and then move on to more advanced topics from there. So, you know, I fill my days with a lot of different passion projects. Very lucky that way. And, you know, writing and reading and talking about the markets, you know, it could could last me the rest of my life. It's it's always something new every day. Yeah. And I think it's there's never a dull moment (laughs) and and
1: there's there's always more to to learn. And also, I think more in time, the more time you spend investing, the more you realize you have to be humble and, and have humility because, you know. I keep going back to the idea of don't embarrass somebody who's going through a hard time in a particular cycle because it's probably going to be your turn next.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I try not to call anybody out by name, even when I'm, when I'm calling about out of touch economists. There was one in particular that I was that I had in mind, and I decided against actually calling him out by name. It's too easy on Twitter to just troll people, as as you're well aware of. But yeah, look, people go on CNBC all the time, and their predictions are you know, proven wrong, and nobody holds them accountable. And then they get invited back, as, which I don't understand, unless they're way out there. Well, so so, it's, it's not,
1: I, put back. I think it's okay to be, because everyone gets it wrong on predictions. I, what sure. I think where the media fails is they don't call out thought pra- process, right? So you, you can be wrong, but still have the right thought process, right? So it's a question of, you know, what I always say, it's like the left of the equal sign versus the right. I think the problem with the media is they're always looking for the soundbite, which is after the right of the equal sign. They don't question if the reasoning is valid to begin with.
2: Fair enough. And you know, everybody uses a qualifying term. You know, they say the market could do this, or you know, there's a forty percent chance that Apple will buy Netflix, or you know, this way. You know, they can make predictions and not and not say, "Well, I didn't say it was going to happen." So, I think I think every prediction should be taken with a grain of salt. And that's not to say they should be completely ignored. I think a lot of people do a lot of good research and share it. And, you know, I think you, you could take the better, the better ones, the ones that have better track records of being right or have, you know, to your point, a, a, a better explanation to why they came about their thesis. And it makes for good material to try and poke holes in it. Yeah. It's just, it's unfortunate that you don't have more of that
1: intellectual honesty. I think yeah, i mean, long form podcast. You can somewhat get there, but the, problem I think even with podcasts that I myself have listened to is a lot of the hosts don't necessarily understand markets to know if there's holes in the argument. Right. I think that's a whole other dynamic. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because, you know, unless you're doing it from a content generation perspective, you know, like I am, while also running money, it's not really your job to know. It's your job just to get the guests and, you know, get
2: questions. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, people love the to, to trust people and uh, who they think they are are experts but the thing with the thing with the stock market is that nobody really knows what the future holds right you could be the smartest person in the world and still get it wrong because there are a myriad possibilities of what could happen in the future and everybody still gravitates towards whoever says their prediction with the most conviction so you know i think there, there there's value there but it pays to really do your own due diligence. And that goes with anything. 100%
1: agree. Carl, for those who want to track more of your thoughts or get access to some of the things that you put out, you know, obviously the financial education side
2: is important to you. Where do people go to for that? Yeah, you can find me at AmericanDreamInvesting.com. I have a newsletter I publish every other week for now. And here on Twitter, you know, the Carl Kaufman is my handle. I publish, you know, I, I have some kind of tweet every day for the most part since the last past year. That, those are the best places to find me. I haven't published anything on Forbes.com in a while, but looking to pick that up back again. And, you know, happy to answer any questions or, you know, feel free to shoot me DMs. My DMs are open if anyone has specific questions. It's a lot of fun just talking about the markets. Everybody, please give Carl a follow here and
1: make sure you... Give kudos to him because he is trying to help others, which I think is important in an industry where there's a lot of bullshit, things that are said and espoused.
2: Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thank you, Michael. This is great. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.